0: There's no bad time to come to law school. And it's probably no good time to come to law school. It's whenever you feel ready, you have to be ready. And uh, there's no uh, denying that it is a demanding curriculum. There are softer graduate programs. So this is a demanding program, not as demanding as some, but certainly more demanding than others. But in the end, you are really going to have not only a a sense of pride and self-confidence, but you're going to have a marketable set of skills that can almost take you wherever you want to go.
1: Hello and welcome to the 7 Stage Podcast. I'm JY Ping and on today's episode, David talks to Richard Pomp, Professor of Law at UConn. This is a fun interview. David wanted to talk to Richard about admissions stuff, but their conversation gets derailed by an absolutely bananas story about the CIA, telepathic fish, and subterranean vibrations. And it's all true. If that's not enough, Richard also talks about why this actually is a good time to apply to law school and what faculty readers actually do in the admissions process. Richard D. Pomp is the Alva P. Loisel Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law. He is a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Michigan and a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard Law School. He has taught at Harvard, NYU, Columbia, University of Texas, and Boston College. He's also been a consultant to cities, states, the Congress, the Treasury, the Navajo Nation, the Department of Justice, the IRS, the United Nations, you know, okay, I'm just going to stop reading this list because basically all you need to know is that he is amazing. So without further ado, here is the interview.
2: Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. My pleasure, David. This is a, uh, it's a great topic we're going to be talking about. Well, I have several questions for you on several different topics, but I wanted to start just by asking you about UConn Law, where you teach. I feel like with nearly 200 ABA approved law schools, students face a bewildering bevy of options and most people just choose a law school based on rank, maybe because that's the easiest shorthand for figuring out if a law school is right for them. So I wanted to ask you what makes UConn Law unique? We are very cost effective. We rank very
0: high in terms of students graduating with the least debt of any law school. Our tuition is quite reasonable because we are a state-subsidized law school. It is easy to become a resident of Connecticut and qualify for that in-state tuition. Living around the law school is very cheap. It's not like New York uh, or a Boston or a Washington. We are on the outskirts of Hartford in a charming West End section with turn of the century Victorians. And many people rent out rooms or third floors to our law students. So our cost of living is low. The campus is gorgeous. Anyone goes to the trouble of taking a look, it is kind of, it's the old Hartford seminaries, sort of academic gothic and just gorgeous, considered to be one of the three or five nicest campuses. We are close to the courts. We are close to the legislature, which is very good for internships, very good for networking. We have a delightful student body. Now I have taught at schools that would clearly be higher ranked, NYU, Harvard, Columbia, University of Texas, and the top students at UConn can hold their own with the top students at these other schools. There's been times when I've given the same multiple choice exam because I'm teaching the same course and my UConn students hold their own with those at these better ranked schools. One big difference, I think we have a much nicer student body than you find at some of these hyper-competitive schools. My students can leave their notebooks There are backpacks in the library, and things will not disappear. If there's a book that's on reserve for a course, things won't be razored out of that book so that no other student can read the critical passages. So we have a very lovely student body. Students will apologize to me if they have to miss class. That is unheard of at other law schools and it's just a delightful place. It has the feel of an extended community. We're we're small enough to still be a big family. We have purposely kept the size of our classrooms on the small side. You won't find courses with more than 60 people at UConn, lots of seminars. Every time we rehab a building, we purposely keep the rooms small and intimate, a great teaching faculty. So uh, I always come back. I've had plenty of offers elsewhere and I come back to UConn all the time. So for me, this feels like home. I've been here more than forty years. I've been on the admissions committee many, many years. uh, And I just can't say enough good things about coming to
2: UConn. Well, I'm sold. Uh, That was very persuasive. And, and also very candid. You
0: know, I'd love to have you as a student. I've I've read <laughs> your resume. You're the kind of student I would love to have in the class. But I, I also didn't... know you were accepted to Yale, so I
2: don't think we'll be seeing you in at uh, UConn anytime soon. So I speak to a lot of prospective students who feel really uncertain about. The idea of going to law school at all right now. Some of them aren't sure if they want to go ever. Some of them know that they want to be lawyers, but they just feel like this is a strange time. It's a very competitive year. There are more applicants than there were last year, not a lot more applicants percentage-wise, but more. And uh, People don't know how the pandemic is going to affect their employment prospects. So, What would you say to someone who isn't sure if this is the right time to go, even if they know that they do want to go eventually?
0: Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And um, the thing about law students, they are great strategists, unlike some other disciplines. In fact, I have a friend, when he interviews, he asks one question all the time. What board game do you like to play? And (laughs) what he's looking for, his preferred answer, is chess, because he thinks that's perfect training for a lawyer. So law students are usually very strategic in their thinking, as, as the question that you put to me uh, demonstrates. Someone who applies this year is going to have three years before they are graduating and entering the job market. The job market this year is not good, although it's getting better, believe it or not. For a while, law firms were uncertain about their plans, and they were not hiring in the same numbers that they were hiring pre-pandemic. Law firms are doing well. There's a lot of work around right now. The stock market, we all know it's uh, at its pre-pandemic levels, if not a little bit above. There's a great sense of confidence with the vaccinations. People are optimistic. You could just sense it. You could see airline bookings are up. People are sick and tired of the lockdown. They're ready to burst loose, and it's filtering down into the economy. The job market right now, we're in the month of March. We're starting to see it open up. By May, I suspect there's gonna be a lot of firms that realize They have waited longer than they should, and there'll be somewhat of a hiring frenzy. And that's this year. So I wouldn't worry about the job market. It is slightly more competitive applying to law school this year, but who knows what next year will bring. It never hurts to, I think, have some practical experience. I think admissions committees value that. I think it helps you in thinking through whether law school is a good choice for you and what you might want to be focusing on in law school, although you don't have to focus on anything in law school, just the way you don't have to have any particular undergraduate major to come to law school. Uh, all, All you need is to have been the product of a good education where you've been stretched and pulled and taken to places you never thought you could ever survive because that's what law school is. It's a bastion for those that are intellectually curious and alive. Every course brings you into a niche of the world that you probably have not experienced firsthand, just the way clients do. Clients take you to places you never even knew existed. So it's a terrific three years for anyone who's at all fascinated with the way the world works. And many people do not practice law after graduating. It's such a a wonderful background for business, for teaching, of course, for almost anything you could imagine doing because you're training your mind to think logically. And that's just a, a life skill to have. So I encourage people, come try it for a year. Uh, we happen to have an evening program at UConn, which is even better. It's one of our advantages. Come try it at night. Keep your day job. Try law school at night and see what you think. Then you could always transfer into the day program. But there's no bad time to come to law school, and it's probably no good time to come to law school. It's whenever you feel ready, you have to be ready. And uh, there's no uh, denying that it is a demanding curriculum. There are softer graduate programs. So this is a demanding program, not as demanding as some, but certainly more demanding than others. But in the end, you are really going to have not only a a sense of pride and self-confidence, but you're going to have a marketable set of skills that can almost take you wherever you want to go. So you don't have to think about Being a great courtroom lawyer, many graduates of law schools never see the inside of a courtroom. Forget any stereotypes of lawyers or any TV show involving lawyers. We come in all sizes and shapes and we do all
2: sorts of things when we graduate. Can I ask you about your own experience? Did you know that you wanted to teach law before you started law school? And what made you go to law school? My experience, which I'm
0: happy to share, but it is so atypical, no one could replicate my experience because in part it was shaped by Vietnam, which shows you how old I am. I had a a physics degree and was going to do a PhD program at MIT in part because it would be a draft deferment. And I flew out to Cambridge It was quite early in February. I met my PhD advisor. We're going to study a South American freshwater fish that when scared, turned red. Not so unusual, you might say, but when you remove that fish from any contact with the rest of the school, so take the rest of the school, put them in a separate room, separate tank, and then scare this sole remaining fish, the rest of the school turned red simultaneously. And the question was, what was the means of communication? And no one had studied this before. The Navy was most interested in it, so there was money galore, and I thought I was all set. And then I went over to Harvard Law School where I had friends of mine from undergraduate in their first year. And I went to class with them. And I saw two of the greatest classroom teachers Harvard Law School had. And I just couldn't believe how much fun it was. These were like stand-up comedians. Compared to quantum physics, it was so easy to follow. It was no calculations, no equations, plain English. And I said, gee, maybe I should think about this. So I went down to see the Dean of Admissions, which I didn't know you weren't supposed to do without an appointment, but I kind of barged into his office. And he, uh, he told me I was not what they were looking for at Harvard Law School. <laughs> and I said, really? Who are you looking for? And he then described someone who, who played the liar and built furniture and wrote poetry. I didn't know such people existed. And I felt like I ought to show him something or other. So I studied for the law boards in those days. It was basically read the instruction booklet and took the law boards, applied, and got in. I wasn't serious about any of this. I just felt this guy was a jerk and I wanted to prove him wrong. Once I got in, however, uh, maybe I should give it a try. It was a little bit more prestigious. Then MIT, if you were working the bars around Cambridge, I already labored under the stigma of being a physics major. That didn't get you very far in a bar. And being a PhD at MIT probably wasn't going to help either. But saying you were a Harvard Law student, eh, women like that. I'm being a little sexist about it, but that was the reality of the situation in those days. And so I called up MIT and MIT said, All right. Tell you what, get it out of your system. We'll hold this one year. Get it out of your system. Fine. That sounded like a good deal. Then President Johnson takes away the student deferments. And now we're all scrambling what to do about Vietnam. And one day I was leaving my contracts class and two people came up to me. White shirt, black suits, narrow black ties. I'll never forget the image. And they said, are you Pomp? Yes. Want to have lunch? And I said, well, who are you? And they said, we're from the government. I wasn't smart enough to say, that's a big place, the government. Where in the government? What branch are you with? I was just hungry and a free lunch sounded pretty good. I was on scholarship. So sure. Well, it turns out they were friends with my advisor, my senior advisor, and I worked on a project, which they knew about for some reason. I said, how do you know my senior advisor? And they said, oh, he does some work for us. Who are you again? Oh, we're with the government. Oh, <laughs> and, and they then made a pitch. They said, what are you doing about the draft? I said, I don't know. I'm as worried as everyone. How about if we told you that if you come with us and give us two years, you can work on your senior project, you won't go to Vietnam, and uh, you'll be able to just do what you like to do, research and design and work on this project. What was the project? It was to detect vibrations in the surface of the earth. Now you think earthquake, but it had nothing to do with earthquakes. It was um, actually (laughs) the kinds of vibrations we have discovered during the pandemic when all business came to a halt and there was no road traffic and not much pedestrian traffic. There's a whole substrata of vibrations. And that was part of what I was going to work on. Why would it be of interest to the government? I asked. Well, it just is. Okay, so I signed up. This is a very long story, and as I said, it's hard for anyone to be inspired by this, but I signed up, and I was secundered, a term which I had no idea what it meant in those days. I was on loan to Air America, which again, your younger people have never heard of but uh, Air America was a front for the CIA, I was to discover later. And what they wanted from my invention was to monitor troop movement along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, because there was quite a, um, a canopy that hid the Ho Chi Minh Trail from our planes. They weren't as, as good then as they are now. And so this canopy couldn't really be penetrated And what they hoped was that my invention, once it got miniaturized, which is one of the things I I worked on, and planted in a way that you could never see it along the trail, would be able to give us information about um, what was coming down the trail always at night. And it was pretty refined to the point where I could tell how many people and what were they carrying. Well, I did go to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam and and, um, many a night went out by helicopter to places that I never knew exactly where we were with a group of people who never talked to me, never talked to each other, all dressed in in, uh, camouflage. And we were helicoptered, we would land. We had folks guarding us with machine guns. And I would find good places to plant this. The signal would be sent back to uh, Saigon. And that was my life in the military. After that, the choice was do I go to MIT on a PhD of indeterminate length, or do I go back to Harvard and have two years and get it over with? And so I chose law school. I'd already wasted enough of my time. And then one thing led to another, and um, I started teaching. There's actually a
2: little bit more to the story, but I think I've rambled enough. That is such a great story. Not at all what I was expecting.
0: No, uh, I have backed into jobs each step of the way. I've never had a game plan. One thing I learned in Vietnam is once the first shot is fired, all planning goes by the wayside. In fact, there's a, a that's a famous saying. It has a lot of truth to it. Everything breaks down the minute there's something unexpected uh, the come your way. So I never planned anything and it's worked out fine, so.
2: Yeah, I've heard a version of that phrase attributed to Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. All right, excellent. Yep, exactly right. Richard, what do law school professors do all day when they're not teaching. Give us a little bit of insight into your life when you're not in front of students. It is a remarkably
0: long day and long week, which is why I think we get a sabbatical every seven years because of the burnout factor. Let's, let's um, take today. I taught today. I was up at about 5.30 or 6 preparing for class. Now, entirely online, and this poses its own challenges. I don't have a blackboard that I can turn around and illustrate a point. I have to anticipate everything that could possibly come up and have something prepared to deal with that. Luckily, after so many years in this business, I have a a pretty good feel for what's likely to come up, but that adds a new dimension. I have to figure out how am I going to hold the attention of a 60 person class on Zoom? Well, I will find an amusing YouTube that's on point. Just as an example, we were talking about the concept of writing off your purchase. What does it mean to buy something and write it off? Well, it turns out Shit's Creek, one of my favorite shows, actually had David explaining to his father how he could write off everything that he bought for the store, even though it is in the motel. And the father says, you can't do that, David. You can't just buy personal things and write it off. And he said, why not? Do you know what write-off even means? Well, The write-off people know what it means, and the whole thing was hysterical. And it went over beautifully, because I'm sure half the students didn't know what writing off something meant. Okay, well, that's just an example. It was a two-hour class. I probably spent four hours preparing for the class. Committee work. You know, one thing about law schools, we do have administrators, but by and large, the faculty runs all of our committees. When I was on the admissions committee, that was probably 20 hours a week reading applications. Most weekends were actually consumed with reading applications. I'm on the tenure committee. That means reading everything that our junior faculty coming up for tenure have done in their lives Evaluating it, sending it out for external review, visiting their classes, and so forth. not to mention my own research and writing, and reading what's being published in the law journals. And today and attending webinars, you know, today, you could do a webinar every day. there's so many of them. it's an explosion because they're so easy given that there's no travel involved. I've just described seven days worth of probably 12 to 14 to 15 hours a day of work. It is a very busy week, but it's a labor of love. You know, I could make a lot more money practicing law. It's a real labor of, uh, of love. And then there is some consulting work that some people do. In the area of my, my specialty, taxation, uh, there happens to be a lot of consulting work if one wants to do it. There's only so much time, but uh, it's always interesting. It's, if you pick and choose wisely, it's cutting edge. You're helping to make the law. You're working with people who you respect. You're working with people who you enjoy being with. And it's making you a better teacher and a better scholar. So there's a busy week.
2: I want to focus in on one thing that you said. So you talked about your work on the admissions committee, and a lot of our listeners are here because they want to understand the admissions process. We've spoken to many, many officers uh, who work in law school admissions offices, but we haven't spoken to many faculty members. So what do faculty members do for the admissions review process? It is different from school to school.
0: So I can tell you what we do at UConn, I'm very proud of what we do at UConn. There are schools that are very mechanical, I think because they get many thousands more by way of applications than we do. They don't have the capacity to read in depth every application. And so they have certain mathematical metrics. They have a weighting of the undergraduate school, and they multiply that by the GPA. They add that to the law board score. There may be a bump for the difficulty of the undergraduate major. And then they have a reject and admit and then the hard group somewhere in between that they have to give more thought to. We at UConn, yes, there's, there's people that are obviously admits. They, they just have crushed the law boards, straight A averages, good undergraduate schools in strong majors. We, the admissions committee, will not see those applications. And then there are applications from people that will not survive at our law school. And we are doing them no favor by admitting them because they're gonna struggle and probably not make it through. There are better places for them. And so they will be the obvious rejects. And then we work toward the middle. It's a very large middle. It's a very competitive and large middle. We read every application in that middle range. Uh, We have faculty reading and we have skilled and experienced admissions administrators reading. And I think what each of us looks for is probably different from the other. Uh, I wanna get a sense of who this person is. What have they struggled with in their life? What obstacles have they overcome? What's their vision in, of the world? What do they, where do they see themselves in, in five years? I just want to know who they are and what they are about, because we do not interview. Many law schools just don't have the time to interview too many applications and not enough people to do the interviewing. So we don't interview. Uh, And I think that is common. I read the letters of reference very carefully. What have they not said? That's very often as important as what have they said. Uh, How well do they really know the person they are writing for? Are they sort of just doing a favor because they like this person and this person is somewhat of a quiet, unassuming, introverted student and never really established relationships with the faculty. And now they need a letter and they're, I won't say they're desperate, but they're not quite sure who they can ask because they have never really shined in class, but they've done well grade-wise. And so I get a letter and it's quite clear This person is almost doing a favor to the student, does not know the student well, but likes the student, and is trying to say the right things, but it's not very forceful. Well, obviously, can't give that as much weight as someone who says, look, I've had this student in three of my classes. They've been my teaching assistant, my research assistant. We work together on a laboratory research project We are writing an article together, and let me tell you, this is one of the best students I've had in 30 years. Now there's a powerful letter of reference. Uh, So you go through the file very carefully. I've actually called people who have written letters because there's been a disconnect. They tell me greatest person ever, and I look on the transcript, and I see they only got a B in the course. Well, how can that be? And so I will call the person up and I will say, look, I got to present this file. Your letter of reference is quite impressive. But the grade was not. How do I explain this? And I've embarrassed writers. And they have said, "Um, what was the name again? And I give them the name, long pause. And what did I say about them? And I read it back. (laughs) And what was the grade? Yeah, I can see why you're troubled. You, You know what? I may have been writing a lot of letters that day. This is actual conversation. I may have been writing a lot of letters that day, and perhaps my exuberance for one spilled over to the next. I said, okay, well, that can happen. I understand. And you know, we're under real pressure at this school to get our people into good law schools. I said, look, I know how the game is played. I appreciate that. So really, are you saying I should probably put more weight on the transcript? Um, Yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) So uh, there's those letters. So anyway, the, the point is, I wanna know who this applicant is. Are they going to be fun to have in class? And what are they going to do for society and the country and the world at large when they graduate? What's their vision? What role do they see? What contribution are they going to make? It's holistic and I'm proud of it. And uh, it's time consuming. We all hate doing it, but it's our obligation
2: to do it. These are the people we'll be teaching. So we want to get it right. That's really helpful. Thank you. I'm going to ask one final question. If you could give one piece of advice to a prospective law student, what would you tell him or her?
0: Where are they in their careers? Is this a college senior? Sure. Let's say it's a college senior. I would say, now this would be post-pandemic, visit the law schools you are interested in. You will be amazed how law schools have different feel to them. Visit and don't let the admissions committee give you their stock tour. I mean, that's fine. Take it. But then hang around. Go to the cafeteria. Introduce yourself to a group of students. Tell them you're thinking of coming here. What do they think? Are they happy? Are they glad they came here? Where do they wish they had gone if not here? You go around, drop in on classes. There's every professor, no idea if it's a decent sized class, who's there and who's not. So you can sit in any class you want. If it's a small seminar, ask permission of the professor. I get asked all the time. I would never say no to anyone. Of course, come in, make yourself at home, happy to uh, afterwards answer any questions you have. It's a very important decision. This is three years of your life, of course. I am always surprised at students telling me, oh, I just base it on US News ranking. Not good enough. The ranking is a bunch of nonsense. Not good enough. So come out, spend the time needed, Really good students will will sometimes be flown out. You can you know, everything's negotiable as law students discover from financial aid packages to will you will you fly me out and, and put me up in a hotel for one night so I can really spend time with you? And again, if you're a hot commodity, the answer will be yes. But hang out, go view the dormitories if there's dormitories. In other words. Do everything you can to imagine what life would be like for you and interview and talk and get the flavor of the place because it is very different, despite what the administrators might say, very different from one school to another. And it's not good. It's not bad. It's whatever you're comfortable with. This is a matter of your personality fitting in with the ambience and the milieu of the school. I'm sure people did this when they were picking colleges. People did the college tour, do the law school tour. Yeah, it's expensive and it's time consuming, but we're talking three years of your life.
2: Richard, thank you for sharing some great stories and giving us some great advice. It was really fun to talk to you.
0: And, and likewise, David, so maybe we'll do it again on
2: another topic. Sounds great.
1: Hi, it's JY again. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're studying for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at 7 We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.